0: This morning, we're continuing a series on coming into or walking into the promised land, the freedom that God has for us as His sons and daughters. And we're learning to, to know what it means to live as citizens in God's kingdom, to, to live and receive more than $3 worth of God, even while we live in the 21st century, which is full of uh, its mixture of blessings and its uh, struggles and its brokenness. And we've been considering how God led the nation of Israel from their time of slavery to freedom. Seeing what we can learn about our own journey as Christians uh, into freedom as a church and as individuals. And so, um, just as we continue to anticipate that we have uh, new people. And uh, for those who might be visiting, just going to review some of what we've been talking about uh, to begin this morning. And so the nation of Israel had come into the land of Egypt because of a genuine need. They, they needed uh, food. There was a famine in the land, and they, they needed to go to the place where there was food. And, uh, and they were embraced at the time by Egypt's leaders, and most particularly a man named Joseph, who was actually an Israelite himself, but was sold into slavery by his brothers. But God took that very unfortunate incident of, being, of betrayal, and uh, and used it and raised Joseph into a position of leadership, of significant leadership in the land of Egypt, and uh, and from that he, he was able to bless his own family uh, with food during the time of famine, and um, but after a 400 year period the, the relationship changed. So it began to be it was began well between Israelite and Egypt, um, but over 400 years he became uh, master the Egyptians, and slaves, the Israelites. And the Bible tells us that God heard the cries of the Israelites to be free. And he indeed provided a way out. And as John's been sharing, after giving the leaders of Egypt nine chances to let Israel go free, and after giving nine tangible warnings, some of them beginning just kind of as a nuisance thing, but progressively more and more emphatic, and more and more life-threatening, uh, to, to say, you need to listen. Uh, but the Egyptian leaders wouldn't listen. They wanted to keep their master a position over the Israelites. So God finally prophesied, he said, the firstborn in Egypt are going to die. And this is going to be the last, uh, the final sign, that Egypt should have listened, and have let my people go earlier. But, As we know from the story, the Israelites would be saved if they obeyed God's command to to do this, to to kill a lamb, uh, to cook it and eat it as preparation for their journey, but then to take the blood of the lamb and to put it on the doorpost of their home. And if they would do that, the death that was going to come would pass over their homes. Uh, The the curse that would be on the Egyptians for their disobedience would, would not be on them. And that's what happened. And after the Passover, the Israelites were free, even though they were still in Egypt. And one of the things we've been talking about is to enjoy their freedom fully, the Israelites, and to receive the life that God had promised, they had to walk out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. And I think the key thing that we've been learning together is that it's by this blood of the Lamb that they receive their freedom but to live in the land of promise to enjoy the life that God had intended uh, that they would follow him into a new territory and take it one step at a time and if they do so God would have wonderful things in store for them and so for people who live connected very much connected to the land and whose lives have been lived basically on slave rations you know what would the promised land Uh, look like for for people of the land. And I think it would look exactly what God gave. He gave uh, lush pasture lands. And uh, and so as we see, when you add lush pasture lands with a fancy looking goat, (laughs) you get a wonderful glass of milk. You get the essentials of life. But then you also, with those rich pasture lands, and uh, God said it would be a land flowing with milk and honey. And so we see that the with our friend the bees, uh, creating honey. And I think what we have here is that milk, the thing that is needed for life, and particularly at the, at the beginning of life, and this was Israel uh, beginning its new life as a nation. Um, milk is needed for life, but honey is kind of like the sweet things in life. And I think we have this sense that, that God is providing everything that you need and a little bit more, <laughs> you know, it's it's over the top, as it were. And um, in one of the today's readings, the spies found in that land this incredibly fertile place, and they brought back a sign of how wonderful that was, and uh, and this picture of fruit, fruit being needed for life, but but not just a little bit of fruit. It's this cluster of grapes that is so big that two guys need to to carry it. Just amazing. In other words, the place that God was leading them to was a place that was better than they could have ever imagined while they were in Egypt. And so that's all very nice for uh, the Israelites. And, uh, but what does it mean for us in the 21st century where we live in political freedom and, and few if any of us who remain in our congregation have ever been in a place where, where we've been occupied uh, territory and where we've been under the oppression of others. Some of our senior members will remember that and know more of that than us. But I think what it means for us is that the Bible says, you know, that, that we are all indeed in slavery. Uh, I was listening to Bob Dylan last night and uh, one of his older songs is, you know, you got to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody, he says. And the Bible says that we, we, uh, we become slaves to sin. We begin to serve uh, things. And two of the ways that our slavery uh, to sin shows itself in our lives is this. I think that um, it comes out in self-centeredness when everything in life begins to revolve around me. And we have a, this this growing sense of self-consciousness um, about our looks. You know, did I get my hair right today? Even though I don't have much to get right. But, uh, you know, we... we we begin to focus in on ourselves, our behavior, our successes and our weaknesses. And, uh, and that self begins to come out because, as you said, whatever is in the heart uh, comes out in the ways that we speak. And we begin to, to focus much on ourselves. But also slavery today shows itself in fear. My being afraid of others, what they know, what they might think of me, what they might say to me or what they might do. And God knows that we're slaves to these things. Uh, he's not necessarily surprised by it. And I think we need to know that. That, that God knows, one of my f- uh, favorite verses in the Psalms is that he knows how we're formed. He knows that we're made of dust. God knows that, that we have these issues, that we are slaves uh, to sin. And so just like he did for the Israelites in Egypt, he provides a way for us to be freed from sin. To be free from self-centeredness and fear. And God did so by sending Jesus. And as we heard last week in the Gospel reading, John the Baptist says, says about Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. calls Jesus the Lamb of God. And the challenging truth we've been considering together is, did Jesus only come to save us from our sin? And leave us in the same old lives? But just forgiven Or has he, like the Israelites Set us free to live in a different way To live in a new land Not necessarily a physical land uh, But the way that God intended from the beginning To live in what Jesus called the kingdom of God And so that takes us to this morning And uh, what would it be like to live in God's kingdom What uh, would it be like to live in the land of milk and honey The uh, life in the promised land uh, includes many different things for us. And I'd like to look at two of those this morning. And I think it's one, it's a life where we are others-oriented. Where our lives are not so focused on self, but actually can, can flourish by being open and to others. And also a life that's increasingly free of fear. of Those bad things that might happen to us or the things that people might say or do to us. And I think it's a life that lives and loves generously, uh, openly, honestly. And it's a life where we don't have to keep secrets from one another, where love and trust are so much a part of our lives that truth and grace and forgiveness are experienced in fantastic ways. And I believe that's the way that God intended us to live. And I believe that's what we see at the very beginning of all creative life and uh, so I'd like for us to take a look at Genesis uh, and we're going to have the you can turn to me if you wish in uh, Genesis chapter 2 but the readings will also be on the screen so God has created Adam and he's created many of the creatures of earth and created earth itself but there's not a suitable person for Adam to have companionship with and that's where we're picking up the creation story it says here, beginning of verse 21, So the Lord God caused the man Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And then while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, Whoa. Well, no, it doesn't say that. <laughs> but it does say. The man said, This is now... Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called Woe Man. For she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Then, especially this the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. What's it like to live naked? I'm just thinking of this now, but you know, it's, it's very childlike, really. Um, don't mean to embarrass you, Josh, Josh, being in the service today, but I'm just thinking of this now. When our kids were growing up, one of the things, you know, they'd have their bath, and then after the bath, they'd get dried off, and it'd be, nudie baby, nudie baby, and he'd be running around the house in the buff, you know. He <laughs> doesn't do that anymore. I'm so, sorry. But uh, but there's this childlikeness, this this unpretentiousness of children when you know that you can live freely, and that's really when we read in Genesis chapter two here, well, I believe that's what God's telling us when they live naked and unashamed. They're they laid bare. They're open. They're not ashamed before one another. And to be naked and unashamed is really to be completely occupied with the other person. You you just really have no sense of self and um, and I was thinking of this and, and I've been taking some, some courses as you know at Regent College and I was I remember the story of St. Francis of Assisi and uh, Francis after his conversion he uh, hears God's call to restore the church and so, uh, so he, and his father had this fabric shop so he goes into his dad's shop and he takes all this really expensive and great fabric and he brings it to the local church and he starts dressing it up and all that kind of stuff and that's great, but he didn't actually talk to dad about taking any of this stuff, so dad gets pretty upset. And not only about his son taking these expensive fabrics, but now uh, Francis has heard this call from God that says God is everything. And dad's upset. He's like, dude, you're supposed to take over the family business. What are you doing? I'm not sure he said dude in the 14th or 15th century, but... But he he wanted his son to take over the family business, not necessarily to pursue Jesus in this radical way. And so, Dad eventually, to try to straighten his son out, he kind of gets the bishop involved, and he gets the law involved. And he brings his son to trial, to try to straighten him out. And he demands that his son bring all the fabric back. And so he does uh, give the fabrics. But then he goes a little step further and he starts to take and he disrobes he takes all of his clothes off he says okay if you want all the fabric that you gave to me here it is I am for Jesus nothing's going to hold me back and, um, and I have a picture of that up on screen there and I just have to point out because as I was looking at it's kind of ironic if you look at the right who are the people on the right there do you see the funny little hats it's You know, it's the religious leaders, it's the the Christian leaders there, and they quickly let's grab something and cover them them up because they don't want them to be exposed. But I think that Francis and those that seek to follow Francis, they they truly and openly and sacrificially, without regard for themselves, are able to to offer themselves to the world. And this is kind of a symbol of it, where Francis says, Nothing is going to get in my way. I am. Fully open to God, and I'm fully open to the people that God is calling me to serve. And you know, and how is it possible that Adam and Eve, and, and then St. Francis and those that would follow, would uh, could be naked and totally unashamed? And I think it's because their great concern was for the other person. There, it's the picture of the ideal relationship where, for Adam and Eve. You know, between one another as humans, Uh, St. Francis, his love and devotion to God would allow him to just expose himself. And I'm not advocating that, you know, that we all run free and streak. But I think that, but that sense, it is a picture of us being open and laid bare, as we see in Genesis chapter 2. And it's, I think, relationships as God intended them to be. Uh, But something changes. Because we know that all of us desired to get clothed before we went out this morning. Uh, something changed. And that sin it came into the world. And we read of that in Genesis chapter 3. And, and I just want to read a, a few passages from this chapter. And I want you to hear the words. So we've heard naked, open, bare, and unashamed. What happens when sin enters the picture? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, as she had been told by the devil, she had been tricked. She gave some to her husband. She took some and ate it and then gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? The eyes of both of them were opened. Opened to themselves. Previously they just enjoyed creation. They enjoyed each other. They enjoyed their relationship with God freely, openly, there's nothing, no barrier whatsoever. But suddenly when sin comes, we, they're oriented to themselves. And uh, looking at their own bodies, there was shame. And what do they do? They immediately cover themselves up. And, and if, as I was studying, somebody said that the Hebrew tells us that it's not like Adam made something for Eve and here, this looks good on you. It's like they separated and covered themselves and as uh, as one cartoonist relates, you know, the covering didn't necessarily help all that much. You know, covering really didn't cover the shame, as uh, as she says in this cartoon. Is a cartoon? I think there's a cartoon. That's okay. Sorry. Thanks, Gene. <laughs> but but I think uh, it's a fun cartoon, uh, but. Uh, you know, I think it's, it, it actually shares a profound truth in that, uh, you know, we can cover, try to cover up sin, cover up things that are going on inside of us uh, as much as we want, but it really doesn't work, right? The shame still exists, you know? Do these leaves make me look fat? It's that sense of, you know, it doesn't matter what I do to cover up. It's the feeling of shame, the feeling of guilt, the feeling of separateness uh, remains. And uh, and I think it's, you know, what God would say is that it's it's better to expose those things. And as I was thinking of this, I was thinking of my my brother has um, a similar condition to me. It's called Crohn's disease. Um, But his is much worse. And so it's an intestinal disease where he's had to have several surgeries for that. And eventually, uh, the surgery that he needed to have was called an ostomy, where um, your intestines are no longer functioning properly. And so they put a... uh, an outlet as it were on your belly, and uh, when you have to go number two, it uh, comes in, into this little bag as a catchment. And for many people, this can be very embarrassing, and it's, it is. It's awkward, and it's different. It's sometimes it can be noisy uh, when you don't want it to be <laughs> noisy. You know. um, uh, but I was intrigued by what my brother did immediately after he had the surgery. He just uh, he, he went up to everybody. He says, so you know, I've got the surgery. Well, let me show you. And so he starts lifting up his shirt, and this is what it looks like, and this is what happened, and all that kind of stuff. And it was his way of growing comfortable with this awkward thing uh, himself, but also helping other people to become uh, comfortable with, you know, because it was going to be noisy and awkward at different times when they were together. And so, and I thought it was just a great example of this idea of, okay, so we have had to have this radical surgery, there's, there's these things in our lives that aren't great, but let's let's open them up, and we can take the awkwardness away for ourselves as well as for those people around us. And similarly, I was thinking of um, in John chapter four, where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, and, and they kind of have this playful conversation for a little while, and it, but it leads to some spiritual questions. And as she, uh, as the conversation goes deep. Um, Jesus gently begins to reveal some things that are going on in her lives, in her life, sorry. And, uh, for instance, the fact that she's she's had five husbands, and that the man that she's living with right now isn't actually her husband. And what I like about this story, as awkward as that is, is that the woman doesn't run away from Jesus when he begins to expose these things in her life. Rather, in the end, she ends up going out and back into the town and, and there's some cultural things that if we go back into the story, but just take my word for it that the reason she meets Jesus in the middle of the day that well, is because she's ashamed to be seen by anybody else. She's feeling outcast. But she has this interaction with Jesus where he exposes something in her life and what does she do? She goes back into the town and she says, she says, come and see the man who has told me everything I've ever done. And it's kind of this proclamation where she says, Hey, everybody, look at me. This is who I am. And it's okay. Because Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, has come. Come and see him. And there's this freedom, this this willingness to suddenly where she's tried to hide from everybody. Now she goes to everybody and she says, It's okay. I know what I am. And it's not perfect, that's for sure. But Jesus loves me. Come and see this Jesus who has come to save us. I think that's milk and honey. <laughs> I think that's promised land living. And but to come back to Adam and Eve, where they made these coverings for one another uh, or for themselves, and they have the separation. They also have the separation from God. And from the first time, uh, they hide themselves from God. And God calls out, oh, "Where are you?" Not because uh, God doesn't know where they are. as if they can hide from him. But really there's a sense of, why are you where you are? Why are you hiding? And I think God invites us to reflect on those same questions today. Why are you where you are? And why are you hiding? Later in Genesis we read this. Adam says to God when he asks, you know, I, uh, where are you? He says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said to him, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, So what have you done? Well, she says, Well, there's that serpent over there and he deceived me and then I ate it. I, th- I think it's interesting that first they hide from God, but then when God comes in and he says, okay, what's happened here? It's everybody else's fault. It's not my fault. Now don't blame me. And so we not only hide, but, but when sin enters our lives, we begin to, as uh, one writer put it, we begin to hurl. We begin to, to put the blame on everybody else. And uh, Chuck Swindoll uh, writes this. He says, Forced out of hiding, Adam stands shamefully before his judge and kind of mumbles his reply. These are the first recorded words of a sinner. And note how Adam communicates. He mixes truth. I was afraid with half-truth because I was naked. The full truth was that he had actually disobeyed God and thus was aware of his nakedness. He didn't Level with God. He concealed his act as willful disobedience instead of openly and honestly confessing it. And then these words Adam can no longer function as a completely authentic person. God probes deeper, and Adam and Eve become increasingly more defensive. They hurl accusations at each other and then at God. The woman! The woman that you gave me, God! The serpent! And the pattern hasn't changed, has it? He says. Since the original scene, down through the centuries, the history of humanity is smeared with this ugly mark of selfishness. Unwilling to be authentic, we hide, we deny, we lie, we run and escape anything but the whole truth. So I'd like to contrast uh, that conversation uh, with a description of conversation uh, whom some of you might have read. Uh, we talked about this book last week, The Shack. And I'd just like to read two excerpts from it. Where the man is having this interaction with God and he comes in to have a meal. And Jesus uh, says in, in Revelation, says, um, oh, it's eluded me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. Uh, if anyone opens the door, I will come in with him. And I will eat with him and he with me. There's a sense of, of incredible fellowship that happens with Jesus. And I think that the author of the shack picks up on that. He's, so God says, Come on, Mac, let's enjoy breakfast together. And he says, Well, thank you for breakfast, he told Papa, while Jesus and the Holy Spirit were taking their seats. And he says they passed the food to one another, and Mac was spellbound, watching and listening as, as Papa joined in the conversation with Jesus and the Spirit were having. It had something to do with reconciling in a strange family, but it wasn't what they were talking about that captured Mac. It was how they related. He'd never seen three people share with such simplicity and beauty. Each seemed more aware of the others than of himself. So, what do you think, Mac? Jesus asked, gesturing toward him. Mac says, I have no idea what you're talking about, said Mac, with his mouth half full of some very tasty greens, but I love the way that you do it. And then later, similarly around the meal, he says, As Mac ate, he listened to the banter between the three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they talked and laughed like old friends who knew one another intimately. And as he thought about it, that was assuredly more true for his hosts than anyone inside or outside creation. He was envious of the carefree but respectful conversation and wondered what it would take to share that with his wife Nan And maybe some of his friends. Two different types of conversation. And I think the author of The Shack is picking out that there's an intimacy of relationship even within God Himself that He wants to share with us. And as He shares that with us, that we might share with one another. And so, as we talked earlier, is there slavery today? Yes, there is slavery to sin, to self, to fear to fear of exposure. But Jesus has come not only to forgive sins, but to bring us into total freedom. And Jesus died for forgiveness of sins, but, but rose again. And through his resurrection, he gives us his Holy Spirit to live as free men and women, to live more and more as God intended, to live free in what we're calling the promised land. And in our reading this morning, we heard of Caleb one of the spies that came back and says, no, we've got to go for it. We can take these people. God's going to give us the land. And it was interesting, a little later in that same story, it says that uh, Caleb had a different spirit in him than the other men. And therefore, he was able to follow God and enter into the territory. And it's that same spirit that empowered Caleb to enter the promised land that Jesus offers to us. In Galatians 5, we read, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Romans 8, it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Rather, God is love, it says in 1 John. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. And as Paul says to Timothy, he says, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. And um, as we close and, and prepare for communion, i just like to offer one more thought. As I was going through this this week and, um, and just looking for different uh, pictures uh, to go with our, the sermon today, um, I came across two pictures. One of the empty grave where Jesus rose from and one of Lazarus. And uh, and the the resurrection of Jesus, it struck me that the grave clothes of Jesus are left behind in the tomb. So what's he wearing? Uh, Thanks, Leelda. (laughs) Jesus comes to new life, and he leaves the clothes behind. There's a sense where God has... Already, he's already exposed himself to the world, really. Has he not? When he, when he went up on the cross, where they whip him, they strip him, and they put him on the cross, fully exposed to the world. But Jesus doesn't kind of say, oh, that was nasty. And now, you know, I've got to get clothes. He leaves the clothes behind. And I think it's a picture of the life that he would have for us. Now think of Lazarus. When Jesus calls him out of the grave, what happens? He's, he's still wrapped up. He's still mummified. Uh, he's able to walk, but he's, he's all wrapped up in stuff. And uh, what does Jesus say? Lazarus, undress yourself. No, he doesn't. He says, he calls others to Lazarus and tells them to take the girl, gla- grave clothes off, sorry, to help him go free. And. Uh, John has, I think, rightly been emphasizing in, in many of his sermons recently, and I'd like to say again, I think this is a picture. Of this, that's why I've written as Lazarus. There's this sense where, in order for us to be free, to fully enter into the life that God has for us, we need to help one another to take the grave clothes off. That's a, a word that we've heard a lot in this church over the years. You know, take the grave clothes off. But it's really not necessarily us that can do it for ourselves. It's within community, as we offer ourselves in open, honest um, relationships with one another, that the sin, the self centeredness, the, the fear that we might experience uh, can be taken off. That's good news. And uh, I think, you know, what we need is we need each other to get a little bit more than $3 worth of God. Let's pray as we get ready for communion. Jesus, we thank you this morning that you have offered yourself to us. We thank you that as the Lamb of God on the cross that you have freed us from our sin, that we are forgiven. Thank you, though, that you also rose from the dead that things didn't just stop with the payment for sin, but you rose again to new life and offered that same new life to us. And um, You came back to those that denied you. You uh, gave them opportunities to confess uh, their denial and to recommit themselves uh, to love you. We thank you for that picture of uh, your time with Peter and the other disciples. Father, I pray that as a church and as individuals, uh, that we would be able to recognize the ways that we hide behind ourselves, uh, hide behind fear, uh, how we cover things up instead of allowing them to be uh, confessed, uh, shared uh, with people that we can trust. And uh, so that together we might enter the new life that you have for us. So, Father, uh, help us to take risks. Help us to enter the promised land, to uh, the land where uh, we not only get what's needed, but we get uh, the sweet things of life, of, of true, um, beautiful relationships with one another, uh, with you, and with our creation, the creation that you've entrusted to us. So, Father, as we uh, come to celebrate communion, uh, help us to enter in again today and to celebrate the way that you've made for us. Now, for we pray it in your son's name. Amen. As we, um, as the worship team comes up, let's take just a moment. Um, one of the things that we've done in the past is uh, called Passing of the Peace. And one of the reasons for that was an opportunity to... Uh, to just make things right, maybe if we have uh, something that's going.